Hello, I'm Marianne Bartels, Chief Investment Strategist at Sanctuary Wealth. I'm thrilled to have my friend and former colleague, Kate Moore, on the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Kate is Managing Director, member of the Global Allocation Team, and Head of Thematic Strategy at BlackRock. Kate, welcome. Oh, Marianne, it's so good to be here with you. Oh, it is so good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. Place. Okay, you and I worked together in the macro department at Merrill Lynch for a number of years. Yeah. What you probably don't know, we have something in common. We both wound up authoring the RIC. We did. Yeah. And you left Merrill Lynch. I remember when you left Merrill Lynch. And you created really a wonderful career um, in, in the world of macro investing. And I'd love to start our, our talk today and how you developed your interest in, in macro it was a little bit different than how most of us wind up in the world of macro. So here's my first question for you. Okay. You began your career basically studying, if I recall correctly, like political, economic. That's right. Philosophy. That's right. You, you were a think tank. Yes. Really, really in, in super nerdy, Marianne, you don't have to like beat around the bush here. I think that's the fair thing to say. Super nerdy. But here's the thing. I don't ever really remember you being nerdy, but very thoughtful. Yeah. So how did you find your way to macro investing in Wall Street? Yeah, I stumbled into it, actually, which is a uh, very lucky stumble, as it turns out, because I love macro investing. And I like to say that this type of investing um, if you are bored, you're doing something wrong because it's constantly changing. You're not analyzing a company in the same way or looking at interest rate in one specific way. You're taking it all in together. So um, you're right. I studied political economy uh, and I did political economy in grad school. And when I was finishing up grad school, I thought I wanted to go work in a think tank. I thought what I really wanted to do was uh, be maybe an academic and just you know continue my nerdiness. Um, and I ended up getting a call from... University of Chicago's career services saying like, hey, Kate, uh, the chief investment officer of Morgan Stanley Investment Management is looking for someone for his macro team. Would you consider going on the interview? And I said, that's not really what I'm looking for. Um, but I took the interview anyway. And what I found is that the people on that team were all macro investors. They had history backgrounds and economics backgrounds, sociology backgrounds. And they were taking all of their skills and their understanding of the world and policymakers and politics and geopolitics, and combining it all together um, to understand markets. And I was like, OK, this is this is something cool. So I kind of fell into it that way. And I've continued to build my career uh, taking in all these macro inputs uh, while supplementing that with understanding companies and the bottom up analysis. So I'm going to tell you an interesting story. I love macro because of all the different moving parts and. My Aunt Bernadette went to Wall Street in 1956. I, I remember Aunt Bernadette. This is coming back. Yes. And I used to go into her office with my big macro theme, and I'd say, Aunt B, what did you think? And she said, okay, now how do you make money for your clients? Right. So you take all of this macro information, and you actually have to filter it down into making investments. How is that approach? How, how do you approach that? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's... um. It's quite challenging. So, you know, I would say there are three types of, of macro investing, right? 
um, or pardon me, thematic macro investing. And one of them is like very long bleed. You kind of invest in something for the long term. One of them is catalyst driven. And then one of them is business cycle driven. And the sort of the catalyst driven and the business cycle driven are like my bread and butter. And that says a lot because I'm a carb addict. So anything bread is right up my <laughs> So um, when, I, when I'm looking at catalyst driven stuff, this is where I kind of study more policy and maybe the conversations that are happening um, at think tanks or in governments. What are we trying to advance? You know, where's the ball going? And where's the support and the money going to flow? And if it's an idea around getting more people to drive, you know, electric vehicles, for example, then really digging in the bottom up and saying, what are the best ways to implement it? In my view, the best way to implement that kind of theme is not to buy a bunch of the car companies because they're all going to be competing for market share, but it's to buy all the components. So I take a much more concentrated and specific You really do a more of a micro approach in a macro world. I, I try and marry them both and, uh, you know, with varying different results. Um, but on the business cycle side, you know, that is super macro where I am looking at, you know, supply, demand, uh, interest rate policy, consumer change, and then just trying to identify very specific industries and then the best expressions there. So you manage portfolios. Yes, so how do you communicate your thematic ideas within the BlackRock community? Yeah, well, there are different thematic teams within BlackRock. Um, and some of them are those kind of long bleed uh, fundamental equity investors. And some of them are on the uh, index and ETF side. Uh, and we try to all have a constructive conversation while not always talking about exactly what's in our portfolio or we don't talk about what we're trading in any given moment. Um, but it's awesome to have a platform like that to exchange a ton of ideas and to have such a diversity of investors around the world. It's really fun for me to be able to like tap into my colleagues in Hong Kong who might be talking to some of the EV battery uh, makers more frequently and in Mandarin um, than, I did, than I am and kind of get their insights on, on where they think demand is going. So one of the things I believe you also look at in terms of your macro investing is like sentiment indicators, oh, yeah. positioning indicators. I feel like I learned some of this from you, Mary, <laughs> honestly. No, I mean, it's around the time that we were working together that sentiment positioning became a really big part of my process. Oh, that's real. Oh, that's very flattering. <laughs> Thank you. I learned that from Nan B. Okay. So I learned that from the technical world. Yeah. And, you know, there is a world today that's called behavioral finance. But a lot of what behavioral finance came from the technical world. Yeah. when the technicians were trying to figure out the behavior of investors. And you do find that investors can be a herd, a crowd. And 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 they once they get all in a position, the risk is, is that they all come out of the position. So these are some of the things that you're taking into account in your decision making. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge part of my process. And it's actually one of the things, the first things I teach younger people who work for me, because um, I find that if they're just too focused, let's say, on macro policy or just too focused on you know, earnings trajectories of different companies and industries or just too focused on valuations, they will miss the entire trade and an investment. And so understanding what components we can put together to get a good read on sentiment and positioning is critical. So it is, you know, what is the rest of the market expecting in terms of data? It is where are people positioned? It is, you know, what do the flows look like? And you kind of have to take this all together in a mosaic approach. It is more art than science, I find. And actually having a big network on the street is really helpful there. Um, but it's a huge part of my entry and exit strategies 
and also my holding. I, I think that's terrific because I don't see that necessarily it's very often. I mean, if we could just plug everything into a machine, into some algo, none of us would have jobs. The truth of the matter is the behavioral side, the sentiment side, it's critical to getting it right. So let's take a step back. Let's review uh, last year. Oof. It was a macro-driven year last year. It was. Right? We had inflation. We had higher interest rates because of the inflation. The consumer was very strong. So what were some of the themes that worked for you last year in 2022? I mean, I think there were a couple of themes that worked. And frankly, Mary and I have a bunch of themes that didn't work as well last year, or maybe I didn't exit as quickly as I should have. And one element to this macro side that you're saying, this this environment of inflation and higher policy rates and kind of a change in um, the overall market leadership was also uh, that sentiment moved really fast in a couple of different places, and particularly sentiment around valuation and multiples. What's the appropriate multiple for a given growth um, and earnings stream? And that was that was hard uh, because that moved so fast in the first half. So one of the themes I think worked really well was uh, around resources. You know, I dusted off my old toolkit my, when I was an emerging markets analyst and strategist early on in my career, and uh, really looked at a lot of the resource companies. Now, we know that many of them had pretty good supply discipline. Uh, some of that was forced down their throat by shareholders, and some of it was, you know, just a decision to be much more capital sensitive. And uh, at, at a time where the economy looked pretty good and we were starting to get more and more economies around the world, like, expand, um, especially China, of course. And so I think the resource side was a, was a really good play. But you had to get, like, deep into it. Um, a trade that went very well for me last year that wasn't exactly perfectly planned was around aluminum and actually a bunch of smelters. Uh, the idea that oil prices were rising, uh, natural gas prices were rising, that was going to increase the input costs on aluminum. Um, but what really catalyzed that trade into being like one of my best of the year was, frankly, Russia invading Ukraine um, and that having an impact on overall aluminum supply. Um, so there were lots of macro and then micro and then business cycle factors that, that go into some of that resource stuff. Sounds like you were really busy last year. Oh my gosh, so busy. I only took once week, one vacation. So our clients are really asking us about what's the direction in interest rates? How much higher do they have to go? What are our thoughts You know, on inflation? Is it peaking? Some people are saying it's peaking. What are your thoughts or BlackRock's thoughts on the direction of interest rates and, and inflation? Let me just say there's a very healthy debate internally at BlackRock around how much further the Fed can or will be able to go. Um, right now, our base case is we're going to get another 25 basis point hike. And, you know, contrary to the market pricing, which as of like a day ago was looking for 75 basis points of cuts at the end of this year, we think they're going to really hold steady for a period that uh, more accommodative policy than, you know, we've had in the last couple of months or last year is actually holding steady, not cutting. So, you know, that that's kind of our base case. Now, higher for longer, um, but that change in terms of the interest rate decision making will have, I think, a big impact on overall uh, market leadership. And that's one of the things that we're watching very closely. If we no longer have to worry about downward pressure on multiples for some of the higher growth areas uh, of the market, and those areas tend to grow better during softer economic periods anyway, 
you know, perhaps we see a rotation, some rotation that leads to stronger leadership for tech and growth. So this really leads into my next question. How are you positioning for 2023? Yeah. Okay. Well, here's the, here's the problem I have. As much as I'm a macro person, you know, I implement mostly in equities and then obviously some index stuff and derivatives, but I, I consider myself like a macro equity person. And for the first time in a long time, equities have some competition. Uh, you're very aware of that competition. You know, we talked a lot. You can like, get 5% now in part, part of the treasury market. I must say, uh, I have never owned a bond in my personal account before this, but it makes some sense, frankly, to balance out my equity risk. We're doing that in our portfolio right now, too, where we have, you know, kind of more um, benchmark weight equity exposure, and, but we have been adding much more to, you know, higher yielding cash-like investments as we wait for better opportunities in some of our favorite areas of the market. So, you know, I think the hurdle rate for getting into a new equity or getting into different parts of equity risk, like, is much, much higher. And it sounds like it's going to stay that way for a period so. of time. That's probably good, right? It's We have to work a little bit harder for it, but it's probably good that it's not just easy money and the world awash in liquidity and companies really have to prove their worth. Basically, when we came into the business, you had to do that. You did. Most of our career, yeah. you, you had periods of competition where bond, the bonds were always considered as part of the investment until we went to this zero interest rate free money right. and then- Tina evolved. Yeah. There is no other alternative. Yeah. Um, what are, can, can you just maybe dive into an, an equity macro theme that you're looking at or positioning for 2023? Well, let me just say there is, I've, I've seen some people talk not just about Tina, but now about Terra, right? That there are reasonable alternatives or whatever. And I also remember actually pre-financial crisis, pre-rates going uh, to zero and negative and staying there forever, um, that I was working at a, a big macro hedge fund and I was pitching a different idea and I, they said, okay, well, you know, can you guarantee 7% return uh, over this, you know, six to nine month holding period? And I thought to myself, like 7%, like that's a lot to try and guarantee. And they were thinking about, you know, Fed funds plus, you know, an equity risk buffer. And they were right. I mean, that's the kind of thinking that we need to have now. It's not just, hey, can I get a positive return is, can I get it across, you know, a significant positive return above my risk-free alternative? So anyway, that's a change in mindset for our analysts. Um, okay, an equity theme I really like in this environment, actually. Um, well, there are a few. Uh, number one, I mentioned some of the stuff that's policy-driven. I think this is where we need to continue to watch policymakers very closely. You know, while there are some challenges to investing in China. Uh, the Chinese have very set out policies in terms of growth in specific industries, uh, what they want to see in terms of consumption. So I think investing alongside Chinese policymakers, listening very closely and kind of having your finger on the pulse there can be an interesting way uh, to add some additional return. Um, I do think that some of the resources we were talking about a moment ago that performed quite well last year have been oversold in the near term. So we're looking for interesting uh, entry points there because the capital discipline, the supply discipline remains in place. Um, and so over the course of the year, I expect that we'll be adding some more in there. And then I love tech from here. I know I tend to love tech in general. I'm a kind of a growth oriented macro equity investor, but some of this stuff got completely sold off and unfairly. And while semiconductors are up like 25% this year, 
Uh, I think there's further room to go as we work through some excess supply. So I'm glad you brought up tech. So I wanted to ask you about that because now the new buzzword is artificial intelligence, AI, yes, uh, chat, uh, GPT. Um, that AI is going to take over our jobs one day. Um, we here at Sanctuary believe that the long-term structural change is in digital, in technology, that this is going to be a very long-term theme. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about AI and the, the deeper parts of, of tech? And do, do you really believe that we have this long cycle in technology? So I, I feel like we're getting so much media attention around these, I don't know, they're not chatbots, but it feels like a chatbot that's based on a very set amount of information uh, available to it. And it, it it makes for good stories and journalists are having fun with it. Uh, but the truth I of the matter- I think students is, are too. Yes, students are too. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that there's like um, enormous implications for some of this machine learning and AI in crunching big data sets. And uh, we're seeing that used across industries, but I think we're like at the very beginning of this overall cycle. I got to tell you, Marianne, I, I don't see AI taking over our jobs in part. I'm glad to hear that, Kate. <laughs> I, do, I do see it um, helping us analyze, let's say, uh, corporate 10Ks or analyzing uh, transcripts even more efficiently than we already are. Um, we get kind of real-time feedback from what a company is saying at a conference or on a conference call or what their you know CEO is tweeting. But we can do even better and really, I think, like uh, take sentiment and pattern recognition to a whole new level. So data continues to be important, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Data is going to be critical. And we're continuing to build up our own skill set. Um, and all of the data scientists at BlackRock are kind of exploding in size and importance. Let me ask you just one more question around tech. Um, I'm sure you've heard about FANG mm -hmm. or the concentration of some of the larger mega cap tech. Yeah. How do you manage that in the portfolio? I think for benchmarked investors, it can be so tricky, right? Because so many of these names have become huge parts of our benchmark indices. Um, of course, we have to follow that really closely. But I got to tell you, when I invest in tech, I tend to go more into the mid cap space companies that are still liquid enough for us to invest in, but are not really dominated by, say, social media or their, you know, data and may not be under the same regulatory scrutiny. Um, I'll give you some examples. I've, I've long been a fan of, of cybersecurity software. It has been a longest duration theme in the portfolio. I've had it for uh, about three and a half years. And these companies uh, continue to innovate they become more and more critical to the business process of so many different industries. And, you know, that's something that's a little bit more interesting to me than, say, a FANG company. So staying in technology, but pivoting a little bit. Um, I'm sure you've heard of blockchain. I've heard of it. And I'm sure you've heard of crypto. I have. So any comments on where we're going in blockchain or crypto? I will tell you that I'm not an expert on this, but I try and spend a lot of time getting up to speed. What I do understand is uh, it's moving at warp speeds, no matter how much time I dedicate to under understanding where we are in terms of cryptocurrencies, uh, I'll never be, uh, you know, on my front foot. Um, without question, this technology is like super duper interesting. And I think at BlackRock, one of the things we're most interested in is kind of the digitization, the tokenization of assets. 
like whether it's on equities or on bonds, uh, that'll have really big implications for how we invest. Um, the intermediaries that we currently use may not be necessary in that environment. And I think it will be a, the next big wave of disruption in asset management. It's the, evolu it's the evolution. Yeah, more than cryptocurrencies specifically, I'd say the blockchain technology and what that does to how we trade and exchange assets is super interesting. It's authenticating. Yeah. It's time stamped. Yeah. And everyone can see it. Right. It's there forever. But, you know, one of the challenges there is if everyone can see what you're buying and selling, right, um, and it's full disclosure in real time, then, you know, do you have the informational advantage you need? What does that mean for overall disclosures? So um, I don't know those answers. I just know it's it's, it's going to be a really interesting time in our business over the next 10 years. Definitely something to watch. Yeah. So... Since you look at sentiment, what is one of your most added consensus uh, calls or investments right now? Yeah, uh, this is controversial, and I will state for the record, this is not the BlackRock house view. Um, but one of my out of consensus beliefs is that not only will we not enter a recession in 2023, um, but we may not actually enter a, a significant and prolonged recession in the next 18 months. Why do I say that? Uh, well, obviously, some of this is built around the labor market uh, and how strong the labor market is. Uh, and, that, and the structural challenges. Yeah. And the, right. I mean, unless unless we open up all of our borders and let immigration uh, go back to where it was, say, five years ago, um, competition for jobs will remain really fierce. And uh, to fill those jobs will remain really fierce. And I think the consumer is going to remain in decently healthy shape at a time that some areas in inflation um, are going to come down. So we'll have disinflationary pressures in some areas of the, your average consumption basket. It's possible that we get pretty anemic growth, like not very un, not very inspiring, kind of something like we saw pre-pandemic without actually a recession. And that parts of the economy adjust, whether it's housing or consumer behavior or corporate financing, to these higher for longer rates. So you're really talking about some kind of like a rolling economy. Yeah. And that means you have to be a little bit more on your toes uh, and be really into the specific asset that you're investing in because you have to understand their funding sources, uh, their role needs. You have to understand if their consumer behavior is changing and before you kind of dig into all of it. So one of the things I love to ask a portfolio manager, because they normally don't get asked this question, okay, um, what are you selling or what are you reducing in the portfolio? Yeah, uh, I'm selling actually a bunch of stuff right now uh, and trimming a bunch of things that have done really well this year. I had an agricultural position on uh, earlier this year that performed very well in those first two months of you know market strength. Um, so I, I, I've exited that only because I don't feel like I have great visibility uh, into the crop side at this moment. And because the super high cost of fertilizer is actually changing the calculation for a lot of farmers. So we were talking before this that I am... Um, I spend a big chunk of time in Wyoming, and on Saturday mornings, um, the farm report is on. And I actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm up early, I'm drinking my tea. I tend to watch this thing on Saturday mornings. I've learned a lot about the psychology of farmers from this and how sensitive they've been to higher input costs. So I kind of faded that trade, not just from the fundamentals, but also from what I was learning from that show. So I, I've sold that more recently. Um, I've also trimmed some of my exposure um, across, I think, the, some of the software stuff I was mentioning, and, and not because I don't love it, but because a bunch of it's up 35% this year. It's just prudent risk management. I, I hope to hold these names for the long term, but take a little profits as we wait and see for and then wait for some consolidation. 
That's terrific. Yeah. I, I want to pivot back to China. Mm. Uh, you have a real expertise uh, on China. Can you just give us a little bit of background how you developed that expertise? Sure. I will say, Marianne, I don't feel my expertise is that great anymore, in part because, you know, it's been really difficult for us to visit um, slash impossible for any U.S. or international investors to get on the ground. It's been a lot of late night Zooming for the last three years, but I'm looking forward to getting back to Asia this spring. Um, so it started because I took Mandarin as an undergrad. And why? Well, I already was fluent in Spanish, and it seemed really interesting. And as I started to study the language, um, I learned more about Chinese culture and found it really fascinating. So I took a bunch of Chinese political thought and Chinese political economy classes. And then um, as I learned the language and learned about the culture, you know, it sparked so much interest that I'd ended up doing my graduate work on China uh, and specifically into kind of a nerdy area of capital allocation and how Chinese model uh, of entrepreneurism was different. Um, but then I spent a lot of time, you know, pre-pandemic was in China four to five times a year and really got to know companies there and management teams and build relationships. I'm looking forward to rebuilding those outside of Zoom very soon. So not having been there, but knowing that they've come out of this three-year COVID lockdown, yeah, what is there's a lot of debate on how much China can grow and impact global growth. What What are your thoughts in terms of their growth and global growth growth as it is you know relates to yeah. their reopening? Well, for so long, you're right. China was the big engine of global growth. That's what we relied on for global GDP and demand on resources, on consumer, and everything in between. But actually, at this point, I think we should think about Chinese growth uh, and Chinese uh, policy to support growth as for China first and foremost and for the rest of the world as a like kind of tertiary um, consideration. And I say that because, you know, the policymakers have been really clear. They want the right kind of growth. They want, uh, you know, carbon neutral growth. They want consumer growth that benefits all segments of the population. This isn't just a buy spend at any cost. Um, so this is going to be a different era. And that's why I think you have to invest in Chinese companies within China, not the global companies that are selling into China. I think that's the appropriate play at this point. Are there any companies today that you're interested in investing in? Yeah. I mean, uh, there are a bunch of Chinese technology companies that I like a lot that will that will get both explicit and implicit support from the government. Uh, there's a bunch of Chinese consumer brands, particularly like, you know, in sports apparel and things like that, that I think are very well positioned to gain even greater market share in China. There used to be a lot more purchasing of of, of global sports brands. So I, I like that quite a lot. Um, and, you know, we've been looking at a bunch of different Chinese healthcare uh, companies as well. That's an area our healthcare analysts have been digging deep into because uh, as the population ages, uh, as consumer incomes rise and as policy improves to support healthcare, uh, we see a lot of winners there in biotech and devices and in pharma. So during COVID, you know, there were a lot of supply issues. Oh, yeah. And we're starting to see a lot of U.S. companies to reshore mm -hmm. or nearshore. Yeah. How are you looking at the world as we're undergoing this this change? Is Does it really impact how you're looking at the United States? So, Marion, the truth is, I think there's a big gap between what companies tell us they're doing in terms of reshoring or onshoring or friendshoring and what's actually happening. Like a lot of times they are not getting rid of their, um, you know, production or their facilities in other regions. 
They are just simply, as they've had to add capacity, you know, built closer to perhaps their developed market consumer base as well. This is another way of saying companies are not closing down factories in China and building factories in the U.S. and still much more expensive to produce here. But to the extent that they can, they're keeping the Chinese factories open for Chinese and Asian demand. And they are adding production capacity, perhaps in North America or Mexico, maybe, uh, to serve the U.S. customer. So I think it's a little bit more complicated. One of the things that you know I've done a lot of work on, actually, is if we were going to choose alternative to, say, China or India, you know, where do we choose? And if a company is making a decision to build a brand new production facility or, you know, a new call center or whatever it is, what do they think about? Well, it's not simply whether or not they can get the real estate. It's obviously around the people. But then it's not just about the people. It's around the whole ecosystem. Is is there a good financial protection system in place for foreign companies that are looking to operate there? Uh, is there good physical infrastructure? Can people get to work? Can we get products out of the country? Um, is there Are there legal guarantees? There's it's, it's such a complex situation. And over time, I expect production centers to you know, change over over um, the course of a number of years and around the world, but it's like not a switch we can flip. Let me dive a little bit more micro mm-hmm. um, with the Chips Act. Yeah, uh, that Biden signed, and we're starting to see you know some change in how semiconductors are manufacturing. There's a lot of bills here in the United States. Can you talk about maybe semiconductors and and the mobility? shifts around the world. Yeah. Look, I think semis are a particularly interesting um, industry to focus on. So I love that you've asked about this because um, the U.S. might end up having an advantage. Yes, it's a huge amount of capital to build, you know, fabrication centers here. But by and large, a lot of the technology was invented here. And we had just been shipping that technology and knowledge to other places to get fabricated. So once we get that physical facility uh, and once we get the production capacity up, the U.S. is going to be in a great position to supply itself, not supply the rest of the world. Because as you will know, there are chips in everything, and our demand for chips is only going up. So we need to build this in order to supply our own demand. How many years would you estimate before we're up and running? Oh, man, I wish I had a great answer on that one, but I don't know. Okay, that's fair. But a lot of billions going into it. At least $40 billion is coming to my brain right now that's been... yeah. And probably a lot more needs to come in as well. I think once... So it's a growth area. Absolutely. Okay. I like to kind of change the conversation a little bit. Um, You and I are both women in the finance Mm -hmm. or financial services industry. And it's changed a lot and yet stayed the same. So looking over your career... Um, how are things changed? Based, you know, we've had great successes. We've had challenges. Over the last 20 years, how have you seen things shift? Oh, if man. you've seen them shift. They've shifted, Marianne, but and you know this even better than I do, but not at the speed that I would have hoped or expected. Um, and I mean that particularly in terms of leadership. You know, there's an off-quoted uh, stat for portfolio managers. I'm sure you know this very well. But frankly, the number of women who are named portfolio managers on funds globally and also in the U.S. has pretty much not budged for like a decade. It's 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 like, you know, anywhere between 11 and 14 percent, depending on the study that you're looking at. So you think, like, how have we gone through the last 20, 25 years, but not significantly increased the number of women who are, you know, managing funds when the truth of the matter is the data shows that. 
you know, women are as good and not sometimes better uh, than men. I always see better. Well, and they they argue it's because we're more conservative. Uh, I don't think anyone who looks at my portfolio <laughs> would say I'm a conservative investor. I think I um I, I scare the pants off of a lot of my analysts who uh who were like, wow, that's a big bet. So uh, I I think it's more that there's been survivorship bias here, right? You know, it's been so hard to kind of crack the code to get someone to give you capital to get them to entrust you with managing a portfolio and then continuing to support you that, you know, like women have given up and those that haven't who have been really tenacious are are very strong investors. So that's been frustrating for me. Uh, it was been frustrating for Aunt B too. Yeah. Aunt B even said, you know, just a few years ago, she's like, Marion, I would have thought women would have made a bigger stride on Wall Street. Um, so here, wait, I do have one thing that's positive that I think has changed in the course. I think when I first started working in the business, you know, as women came together, it was this idea of like, we'll just network with each other. And that's nice. You want to make friends that kind of look like you and have similar experiences to you. But now I'm seeing much more deliberate and constructive, uh, if it's not networking, but relationship building. Like, you know, at BlackRock, I am the executive sponsor for women in investments. And I say, like, if you want to have like just a what's it like to be a woman in business conversation, we're not your crew. Uh, it's all markets all the time. Our job is to make each other smarter. So what advice are you giving women that want to be in Wall Street or are already here? Yeah, I give them this advice that um, when they think about their networks, not only should they not think about, you know, internal to their organization, but to really actively build up their network at, at you know, other buy side firms or the sell side, like, and not to just think about building up their network at, with other women. That if women are going to really make it to the next level, um, we need to really link arms with our supportive men uh, colleagues and to really create these sort of micro um, groups that kind of rise with each other. You think about like your analyst class, but it even happens when you're a managing director. It's like, who are the people on the street that I rely on? How do we come together and make each other smarter? And it's not just women. So mentorship is important. I think so. I mean, I was fortunate. You know, I'm second generation Wall Street, and I, my first mentor was a woman. Mm -hmm. My first job, my first boss was a woman. So my, my background is so unusual to have that support. And they were tremendous mentors. And yes, eventually I had men mentors. I would not have gotten to where I am today without the support of another a, a number of, of men. How are you mentoring um, women in the business today. Yeah, and I mentor a bunch of young men too. Um, I, and I think what, I, what I'm trying to do, I think more than maybe I did in the first part of my career, to be honest, is to be like super authentic and um, to not be too corporate because that's actually not my personality. As you well know, like I am, you know, um, um, much more colorful than that. Because I want people to feel like they can be great investors and great analysts and also bring more of themselves to work. I, I felt very constrained and I had to really fit into a, a, a um, into some sort of box, not just in terms of what I wore, but how I presented myself, how I spoke up in meetings. And I, and I think we need to be a little bit more fluid for this entire younger generation that looks at things differently. I can honestly say that part has changed. When I came to Wall Street, I had a skirt down to my ankles. Yeah. A collar up over my neck. Uh-huh. And I think the fashion has definitely improved. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm for, wearing for my us. sneakers today, as you, <laughs> as you know. I'll tell a funny story, which is 
Um, I started wearing sneakers more often to work last year after hip surgery. And then there was a time last summer, I think, where I was wearing, you know, some nice dress flats. And one of the women on the trading floor came up to me and said, Kate, oh my God, are the sneakers over? And I said, no, no, I just have to go to a client meeting because I'll put the sneakers back on afterwards. And she said, oh, thank God, because like, we're all just watching you to see if it's okay. And I said, it is always okay to take care of your feet. <laughs> there, you've got, you've got leadership. You've got leadership. What do you think we can do, Kate, to get women to even think about coming into Wall Street or financial services? Aunt B and her friends back in, I would say, the 60s, it was about the 1960s, they would actually go out to universities yeah. and talk to women and educate them about what was even available because they, they had no idea what was available. How, how can we encourage more women to come into the business? Oh, my gosh. I think there are lots of cool ways. Number one, I would say that university involvement is super important and um, letting young women see early on that there are a variety of different types of leaders in the business and kind of talking about the variety of different jobs. Um, number two, I'm a super big fan of this organization, uh, Girls Who Invest. BlackRock has a relationship with them. I've given uh, some talks to their summer program, but they pull in these awesome young women who are uh, second years in college from all different majors and backgrounds and schools, uh, give them the education they need to get Wall Street internships and help make the placements. And um, I think that's a great way. Once, if you have a friend who's doing this thing, then maybe you get interested in it as well. So I love that kind of organization. And then the other thing I would say, and you do a lot of this too, like, you know, getting out there on media, like if someone is flipping through the channels and they see oh, someone that looks like them on TV, it matters. Yeah. yeah. Thank heavens there's more of us that Thank are God. now showing up uh, in the media. Totally. And I would say the last few years, yeah. it, there's been a, a significant increase. Yeah. Now, I happen to know you personally. Yes. Right? Uh, you're, you're a great athlete. You're extremely talented. You're tenacious. Um, and, and you don't take the easy sports. No. No, you're, you're doing some of the tough sports. So how do you take what you're doing in your outdoor life, in your physical life, and bring that in, into the office and in, into your work? I tell you what, I mean, and this, I'm trying to work on my own biases, but there's one bias I have that I, I'm totally okay with, which is that I tend to hire people who are athletes. Um, I tend to hire people who have really had to, you know, put a ton of attention and energy and focus into developing a skill and you have a history of not just winning but also losing right and then they go back and say where did i get this wrong where did i where could i have trained better should i have passed to this other colleague um, i have a real bias there because i feel like the process of training for a sport and pushing yourself and working on a team and putting others on your team in front of your own like personal ego or your ability to score a goal or something is really, really important um, in a successful investment team. Uh, great discipline. Yeah. And great collaboration and teamwork. Totally. Those are really important to 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 everyone's success in, in, in the business. Absolutely. So I think, you know, I, being an athlete informs how I hire and being an athlete informs how I coach my team. Kate, this has been such an inspiring conversation with you today. I can't thank you enough for joining oh. us. Thanks, Marianne. It was so great to be here with you. You're one of my all-time favorite. Oh, thanks.
Thank you for watching or listening to the Friends of Sanctuary podcast. Tune in next month to be sure not to miss out on the next installment of the series. Securities offered through Sanctuary Securities, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC Advisory Services, offered through Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, and the SEC Registered Investment Advisor, Sanctuary Securities, Inc., and Sanctuary Advisors, LLC, are wholly owned subsidiaries of Sanctuary Wealth Group, LLC.